So I want to talk about how laborers are needed, right? This is, this is the heartbeat of, of the message I'm going to talk about. I'm going to talk about a couple things, but underlying is this, that laborers are needed, right? Uh, that would be the title of the message if I had one, laborers are needed, in contrast to just volunteers, okay? Volunteers are good. They're nice, but volunteers are people that help out in their free time. Laborers are people who are sent. They serve from a place of vision and faith, knowing why they're serving and why it matters most. Okay, that's what laborers are, and I'm going to back that up with scripture, obviously, but that's the difference. In my mind, that's how I understand the difference between these two terms as I talk about them, okay? Volunteers are good. Everyone could use volunteers. We could certainly use volunteers all over the place, but Jesus is looking for laborers. Right? And there's a difference there. And we need to see that difference. I had a dream maybe a little less than a year ago. And I wrote it down because it, it uh, honestly, I didn't share much because it seemed arrogant to me. Um, but in this season, it seems, seems fitting and I felt this way. At the beginning of this dream, I was with a, a younger guy in the church here who was installing cabinets. And he was having a hard time making a 90 degree angle line up. And I remember that I came up to him. Uh, and he was frustrated. He couldn't make it work. And I came up, and I just uh, was being gentle, basically mentoring, showed him how to make the, the angles lined up. I felt like this was super prophetic because in real life, I'm a master carpenter, so this worked really well. Spoke. Uh, I'm just kidding. I'm in IT. I have no idea how to line up a cabinet, but in this dream, I did. I was down pat, and I came up, and I helped this young guy, and there was peace brought, and he, he suddenly knew how to do it. But I then suddenly shifted to another scene in the dream where I was talking with Sean, my mother, and some others. My mother is also a leader in this church. And we were in a very large room, like a huge room. I just remember feeling like this room is so huge and empty, right? Uh, bigger than this tent. It was just a monster room. Uh, and it was empty. And in the dream, I was talking about how I wanted to fill it with many, many more couches and chairs than even the people I was talking to were thinking I wanted to do. Right? So in talking to Sean and my mom and other people in the dream, whoever they were, the point was that I was trying to communicate we need a lot more than what they were understanding. Um, and this dream stood out to me, and I remember praying into it. It was significant, um, and I think it's significant now knowing the season that we're in and what the, the prophetic words that have come forth about us, the harvest about to come in, and us being ready, and some of them talking about it, it beginning in the fall, and, and us needing to be ready. Um, and that it's going to be bigger than we think, and it's going to be more than we think. It's going to be more than we can handle in our own natural strengths. And it's going to be way more than we can handle if we don't have laborers, if we don't have people ready. Okay, and I want to, I want to just read just a boatload of scripture to you, because those are the best messages anyway. Um, there were a little bit more to the dream, but I'll finish it if we get to it. But that was the essence. This is the part that stood out to me in the dream, that... We weren't talking about filling it with chairs, right, or pews. In the dream, I was stressing that we need to fill this place with many more couches and chairs, and I was thinking chairs like living room chairs, right, that we need to fill this place because God is going to bring people, and they need to know that they're in our living room, that they have come into our family, and that we're ready. And the point was that God is giving us the container, and it's up to us to fill it with the places that will make it feel like home for them. 
where they will see that this is the family that they've been longing for their, for their lives, and that in this, Jesus will meet them and fill them. And his dream was significant in that way, and I think it was significant that in the dream, it started with a one-on-one mentoring scene, and that launched into this vacant, open place that God was about to fill, and, and us feeling the urgency of needing to fill it with the place that would make them people feel welcome. Because the third part was, uh, suddenly I was in a place where I was doing a big presentation, uh, to a ton of people about our ministry plans for the future, uh, and they were like the 10-year plan, extending past 2030. Uh, one of the big events that we were planning on doing was the Burning Man, and in this dream, we were going to the Burning Man, and if any of you guys don't know, the Burning Man is kind of like a really intense, secular, godless event that happens every year in the desert in Nevada, where people come and they get to live kind of uh, just free however they want, free expression, and most of that is expressed in very fleshly, demonic, like, antichrist ways of just uh, freedom from Christ versus just freedom. Um, and in this, we were going. We were going to go there to reach out and bring the gospel to this place. And the height of their event is that at the end of their event, they have this giant straw man called the Burning Man. And at the end, they burn it down as a celebration of the festival. And part of the origins of this Burning Man was that it was a challenge to God for him to light it on fire. And if he doesn't, then they will. And it's kind of, it was birthed from a place of mockery and not a lot of people that go understand where that came from now. They just think it's cool festival stuff. But it was to challenge God to burn this thing down, send fire, and if he doesn't, we'll burn it down. And it's a real, uh, it's a worship to humanity, you know, to humanism. And then so in the dream, that's how I understood it. And we were going there. And um, I was there, and during the final burning, you remember this is like a dream, so I was like Elijah in this thing. Um, the final burning... Uh, which I was there in the dream suddenly, I was able to go up to the burning man and speak to it and freeze it mid-burn, right? And then I got up on their platform and I began to preach the gospel and plead with them, you know, to turn to Jesus. And I knew that when I was done, I was going to release the burning man and let it continue to burn. And I felt like this was significant in terms of where God's bringing us, right? The dream wasn't about me. The dream was about what was happening with what God was doing through us. And first there's a one-on-one mentoring, and then there's a giant place that gets filled, and then there's a release of the gospel and power to the gates of hell themselves. And I think this is, this is the, the trajectory we're on, guys. This is the path we're on. And the only people that can abort it are us. And so we need to become laborers. This is what Jesus literally commissioned us to pray for. We don't need to pray for the harvest, which is what I want to talk about, okay? We don't need to pray for that. So let's look in Matthew 9.35. You can look at it. I'll read it. It says, Then Jesus went to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them, because they were weary and worn out like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the people he was training as laborers, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Two quick points there. He said, pray to the Lord of the harvest. Guys, this gives us insight and great hope that this harvest isn't just some harvest. He is Lord over it. He has produced it. He has prepared that harvest for us to go out. And he's saying, I want you to pray, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is from Jesus himself. What he's telling his disciples to do. 
He didn't say pray for health, wealth, or all the provision you need. He didn't say pray for inner healing and pray for the brokenness to go away. He was talking to broken people that were being healed as they walked with him and said, this is what I want you to pray for. That's the primary focus. As we do that, guess what happens? God heals us because he loves us. Because in Matthew 6, he promised that everything that everyone else seeks for, you will have if you will seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. You will not have to worry about provision. You won't have to worry about the things you need unless you think the things you need are comfort and luxury. Then you better worry about it because those things will disappear like a vapor in the wind. But if the things you know you need are the things to fulfill the mission, to be a good laborer so that one day you can stand before God and have him say, well done, then those things will always be available. You will always have the provision you need for that. There's another version that's in Luke, which I think is worth reading because it's a great second perspective in Luke 10. after this, the Lord appointed 70 other followers, and he sent them ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself was about to go. See, these guys were sent, and they had a vision. They understood what they were going for. He explained it, and they ran with it. He told them, guys, I'm sending you out, and this is what he said. The harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Now go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Don't carry a money bag, travel bag, or sandals. Don't greet anyone along the road. Whatever house you enter first, say peace to this household. Do you see what he just did right there? It's easy to pass over that. He's telling them, I don't want you to pack all the things you think you'll need. I don't even want you to stop along the road to talk to people. I'm sending you on an urgent mission. I need you mission-focused. You get there. And when you get there, whatever household you enter first, you say peace to this household. If a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they offer, for the worker is worthy of his wages. Don't be moving from house to house when you enter any town, and they welcome you. Eat the things set before you. Heal the sick who are there, and tell them the kingdom of God is When you enter any town and they don't welcome you, go out into the town and say, we are wiping off as a witness against you even the dust of your town that clings to our feet. Know this for certain. The kingdom of God has come near. This is what he told them to do. He said, if they respond, then let them know the kingdom is near and do it through signs and wonders and demonstrations of that kingdom. He said, if they reject it, then you leave them and you let them know the kingdom of God is near. As a warning that they've rejected it. And the last thing he says there, I tell you on that day it will be more tolerable for Sodom than for that town. For a town to come and see the gospel and reject it, no bueno. So I want to look to John now for this. John 4, 27. This is the story of the, the woman at the well. I love this. We talk about how awesome it is that the first evangelist that Jesus sent was a woman, a very broken woman who had been married five different times, and the woman, the man she was with at this point wasn't even her husband. And Jesus looks at her and says, 
I'm sending you to preach the gospel. That's powerful, but that's not what this is about. It says this, after he just told this woman, like, I am the Messiah and I do not reject you, go and tell these people what you've heard. It says, just then his disciples arrived and they were amazed that he was talking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then the woman left her water jar, went into town and told the men, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to him. In the meantime, the disciples kept urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. And the disciples said to one another, could someone have brought him something to eat? And then he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And Jesus told them, don't say there are still four months, then comes the harvest. Listen, he's talking to them. I want you to understand what's going on before you see what he says here. He's talking to them about a supernatural reality, a spiritual truth that is happening right there, something Jesus is knowing and discerning. But his disciples don't get it, and they're talking to him in the natural. And they keep responding to him, and they're so confused because they're not discerning what he's saying. And at this point in the season, right, Jesus is saying, don't tell me there's four months until the harvest comes. Right? Which at the time of this writing, that was the natural, under, that was the natural truth. Four months from now, they would reap the harvest. Jesus set out in the springtime for this journey. So this is what he says. says guys, in other words, I've just said two spiritual statements that you've totally missed. And so he goes on to say this. Don't say there are still four months, then, then comes the harvest. Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already ready for harvest. And the reaper is already receiving pay and gathering fruit for eternal life. So the sower and reaper can rejoice together, for in this case the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap where you did not labor for. Others have labored, and you have benefited from their labor. Now listen. Jesus just sent the very first person alive that he confessed he was the Messiah to, to go to the Samaritan town and tell the people what she just heard. And then the disciples come back, and he's telling them the harvest is ripe now. And watch what happens. This is what he's saying after he said, don't say all this stuff. Now, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified. What did she say? He told me everything I ever did. Therefore, when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of what he said. And they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the Savior of the world. This whole scene is dramatic and powerful when you see what was going on and what Jesus was saying. He's trying to communicate a spiritual reality that was happening right there in the moment. Jesus was saying, look, I've brought you here to the Samaritan village. They were not happy about when you read what they were not happy about being here. And he sends one. He's talking to a woman and like, what are you doing? 
He's like, do you want to eat? No, I, my food is to do the will of the God, of the Father. I have food that you don't know of. Like, what did someone feed you? I don't get it. And then he says, listen, don't talk to me about the harvest being four months away. It is ripe now. Watch what happens. And the very first evangelist goes and tells people about her encounter with the Messiah. And they believe based on that. They believe enough to come. They want to see the Messiah. They want to meet him for themselves. And when they do, their belief, their faith is now rooted in Christ himself, which only happened because she went and shared. And in the New Testament later on, Paul expands on this revelation where he says this, faith comes from hearing. And that being the word of God, that is his climax statement from an entire passage where he says this, the people need to hear the gospel, but how will they hear if people do not preach it? And how will people preach it if they don't go? And how will they go if they're not sent? He is literally appealing for laborers because he's saying, look it, this is the natural progression here. Laborers have to go and they have to preach and they have to testify about who Jesus is and what he's done. And those people will hear and they will listen and then they will come and then their faith will be rooted through the word of God that they see themselves. Why? Because the word of God reveals Christ. This is what's necessary. This is what the purpose of it is. This is why there has to be laborers, true laborers that understand the vision behind why they're laboring. That are laboring from a place of faith in the promises of God to do what he said he'd do. Promises from God that said, the, the, the harvest is ripe, guys. I need laborers. If you'll go, you'll reap it. That's something you can put your faith in. This is how we see, though. So we got laborers. And we need to have laborers who are infused with vision and great faith. Again, not just volunteers that are willing to, to latch on to the bandwagon of others who have faith. If you don't have faith, seek it. Ask for it. Jesus gives it. This is what he does. But I'm going to tell you a little secret. He's given it to us in great faith, in great capacity, in abundance, in everything we need. He's literally given us everything we need for this life of godliness in Christ. I know, but I'm going to share a little secret. Almost everyone in here has that secret book in their house. You literally have the supernatural portal to stand face to face before the living God and see him as he beholds himself. And you don't need to be out in some mystical place to do that. You just need to get into a little closet and bring that mystical, magical book of yours. And then pour over it and dig into it until you see. This faith comes from hearing, and hearing the word of God. It is the full revelation of the Father to us. Guys, John Lennox shared this before, but it's super inspiring. This is the guy. He is the living, he is, he is C.S. Lewis 2.0, and he's alive today for us to, to glean from and to listen to. And because of YouTube and the internet, you can do it from the comfort of your own living room or anywhere your phone is. And you can read his books or you can listen to his books. 
But in all his books, he points to the power of the scriptures and his own testimony that has revealed Christ in him. And he said this. He was, he was doing a series, and the last part of the series, they asked him, if you could say any last thing to your children and your grandchildren, what would it be? And he tells a story about how him and his friend, uh, who grew up together, had always shared, whoever dies first, the other person shares at that person's funeral. And so John Lennox was... Uh, a little older, so they always joked that he would be sharing at Lennox's funeral, but his friend called him one day and said, listen, uh, bad news, you're going to be sharing at my funeral. He says, I've gone to the doctor, they found a tumor in me the, the size of a, a grapefruit, so this is it. And John Lennox, in this conversation, says, what is it you'd like me to share? And this guy said, share with them this, that they would do what we did even back when we were students in Oxford together, that, we, that they would pour over the word in prayer and wait patiently until they see his face. And then he said, and add this, that for all those that want something to say, when they do that, then they'll have something to say. And what he meant by that, because these, these guys are old, they're in their 80s, saying something, meaning preaching. These young people from seminary, they all want to preach, they all want to share. He's saying, tell them to do this first. Then they'll have something to share. How many of you guys know who George Mueller is? Okay, George Mueller was uh, a man of God who lived in the 1800s, almost the entire century. He was like born in 1800 and died in 1892. And this man was a man of faith, a man of prayer, and a man of the word. Okay, he was a pastor of, of, of one church for 60 years of his life. He lived to be 92. And in that time, he planted and ran, him and his wife, five different big orphanages where they took care of in their lifespan over 100,000 orphans. More than 10,000 at a time across the five orphanages that they planted. And he felt like God commissioned them to do it and therefore did not ever intentionally raise any funds for it, but just said, God, God asked me to do it and he will provide for it. And he, as a conviction of his own, would never ask a person for money for the work. But what he would do is after people who wanted to be benefactors would come and talk to him and ask him about it, he wouldn't ask them for a penny. But as soon as they left, he would ask God for their money. He would say, God, send their money to us. And he would do this, and because of that, he lived a long and fruitful life. He had two wives, one that he was married to for 20-something years. She died. He spoke at a funeral. Then he got remarried at 66, and then spoke at his second wife's funeral in his late 80s. Both he raves about as women of God. But this is some of the things George Mueller said about the word. This is from his, his biography. <clears throat> Says this. Now, he believed that... Uh, Happiness and joy in your relationship with God was of supreme importance. That's what he says sustained him in his life, was that he took great joy in his Lord. And so he believes it was supreme and paramount. He says, because it is the spring of sacrificial love that honors God, then the crucial question becomes, how do we get this joy and keep it? But in what way shall we attain to the settled happiness of our soul? I'm quoting him now. How shall we learn to enjoy God? 
How do we obtain such an all-sufficient, soul-satisfying portion in him as shall enable us to let go the things of the world as vain and worthless in comparison? I answer, this happiness is to be obtained through the study of the Holy Scriptures. God has therein revealed himself unto us in the face of Jesus Christ. This was his answer. He was writing this in his 80s. A life of walking and serving God and having such fruitful ministry that few can compare. And this is what he says was the key to this relationship for him. Happiness in God comes from seeing God revealed to us in the face of Jesus Christ through the scriptures. In them, we become acquainted with the character of God. Our eyes are divinely open to see what a lovely being God is. And this good, gracious, loving, heavenly Father is ours. Our portion for time and for eternity. Knowing God is the key to being happy in God. That's almost common sense right there. He says, the more we know of God, the happier we are. When we became a little acquainted with God, our true happiness commenced or began. And the more we became acquainted with him, the more truly happy we become. What will make us so exceedingly happy in heaven? It will be the fuller knowledge of God. Listen to what he just said. And then compare that to what scripture says and say, how I never put those two things together. He says, what will make us so exceedingly happy in heaven? It will be the fuller knowledge of who he is. We will know no longer in part, but in whole. We will know him. And that is what will bring us our fullest joy. Joy of heaven joy. See, people like this are the people we need to learn from and glean from when we're sitting at home and struggling to want to pray and read our Bible and wonder why it's not working. We go to the men of God who have gone before us, whose examples shine bright, and we say, how did you do it? And we glean from it, and we learn from it, and we submit ourselves to the truth of the people who have gone before and demonstrated the fruit we only hope to have. This is what he goes on to say. Therefore, the most crucial means of fighting for joy in God is to immerse oneself in the scriptures where we see God in Christ most clearly. When he was 71 years old, Mueller then spoke to young believers and said this. He said, now in brotherly love and affection, I would give a few hints to my younger fellow believers as to the way in which to keep up spiritual enjoyment. He's talking to us right now, guys. It is absolutely needful in order that happiness in the Lord may continue that the scriptures be regularly read. These are God's appointed means for the nourishment of the inner man. Consider it and ponder over it. Especially we should read regularly through the scriptures consecutively and not pick out here and there a chapter. If we do, we remain spiritual dwarfs. I tell you so affectionately. For the first four years after my conversion, I made no progress because I neglected the Bible. But when I regularly read on through the whole with reference to my own heart and soul, I directly made progress. Then my peace and joy continued more and more. 
Now I have been doing this for 47 years. I have read through the whole Bible over 100 times, and I always find it fresh when I begin again. Thus, my peace and joy have increased more and more. Now look, this is the last part of what he said. His biography goes on to say he was 71, and he would live and read for another 21 years. But he never changed his strategy for satisfaction in God. When he was 76, he wrote the same thing he did when he was 60. He said, I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. And the means stayed the same. I saw that the most important thing I had to do was to give myself to the reading of the word of God and the meditation on it. What is the food of the inner man, he asks. Not prayer, but the word of God. And not the simple reading of the word of God, so that it only passes through our minds, just as water runs through a pipe, but considering what we read, pondering over it in prayer and applying it to our hearts. The last thing he said on his deathbed, Surrounded by so many of his children that were not his biologically. Hundreds of orphans that he had raised. And they asked him, what is it that you would leave us with? Father, if you could do one more thing, what would it be? This is what he said. He would say, I would read my Bible one more time. Because, this is the reason. Because I don't feel I have a sufficient knowledge of the excellency of Christ. This is just, it's such powerful insight. It's such powerful insight, and it shows us where we're so neglectful with the treasures of heaven that have been given to us. The Bible makes clear, especially Hebrews 1, guys, that Jesus is the radiance of the Father's glory. He is the complete representation of God, and he is fully revealed in his word to us. He rebukes the Pharisees and the followers who were, who were so confused how he was, he was the Messiah. They did not believe in him. He said, you guys search the scriptures because you think in it you have eternal life. But they point to me. This is what he says. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. At another point, he says, I am the resurrection and from the dead. I am the resurrection and the life. This is what he says himself. And then he is revealed to us here. You know what happens if you want to pursue Jesus daily in just prayer and worship and good works? You end up worshiping a golden calf that you call Jesus. Because we are not perfect. We need to be renewed daily in our own thinking, in our own mind. It has to be. We are to be transformed through this renewing of our mind. Why? So that we can accurately discern the will of God. That's why we need to renew our mind. And the Bible says right here, this is how we do it. Through the washing of the word. 
There's, a, there's an example in Scripture, again, where Jesus is showing spiritual truths to his disciples. He's washing their feet, and he's going through washing their feet, which is totally backwards. That's what servants do for their masters, and here's the master washing the feet of his servants. And he comes to Peter, who's like, you know, the most, like, gung-ho loyal guy. He says, you will not wash my feet, Jesus. I should be washing your feet. And Jesus says, let it be so, right? He's like, no, no, no. And Jesus says essentially this, listen, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part in me. And Peter was like, okay, then not just my feet. Wash everything, my hands, my head, everything. And Jesus again says this to him, you are already clean. For a man who's already clean, all you need is for your feet to be washed. What did that mean? It's so cryptic and weird. Unless you were engrossed in their culture, washing their feet was just a practical thing to get the junk and the dust and the poop from the day off of them. You understand? They could wash up before they left the day, and as soon as they walk out the door, their feet would be dirty again. Because they had Jesus sandals on like this, right? They didn't have shoes or boots that would cover their feet. And so washing their feet was how you allowed someone to be clean again when they entered your home. And so Jesus is going through and he's saying, I want to do this symbolic act natural to speak something very clear to you. I am going to wash your feet. And this is all you need from me on a daily basis, guys. Come and be cleansed. Let yourself be renewed daily through the washing of the word. This is the message of the people who have gone before, how they testified. Smith Wigglesworth was a man who read nothing but the Bible. He taught himself how to read with the Bible and then refused to read anything else but the Bible. He didn't even allow the newspaper into his home because he didn't want the junk from the world to interfere with his mind and how he saw things. There's just so many examples. I could have, I looked up like 100,000 different quotes from so many different people, but it was like we could go forever. You can do it yourself. That's the point. Dig into these truths. Look into the scriptures and see what it says. I want to give you a practical example that I just saw with my kids in this, that it was such a powerful uh, example. So, um, Rob Morrill, Rob and Kelly, their daughter is sick and getting some, some diagnoses of some pretty scary things if you're a parent. Uh, and so we were going to go over to pray. And um, so I went to pray and I took my family with me. My little kids before, like my 9-year-old and my 11-year-old. Before we went, I said, hey, do you guys want to go with us and pray? We're going to go pray for their daughter that God would do something awesome and heal her. And so they were like, yeah. I said, okay, but you, you want to do that? It's like, do you think God can do that? And he was like, yes. I was like, why do you think God can do that? And first I asked my, my 11-year-old, and then I went and asked my 9-year-old. Both of them gave the same answer, okay? And this is what they said to me. I said, why do you think God can do that? Like, why do you believe he can do that? They said, because I just read how Jesus healed a little girl who was dead. And then I just read how he healed that sick person, too. This is what Jesus does. And I was like... Had to turn around because I'm undone, right? I'm like, huh. Because I have them reading the Gospels right now. They're going through the Gospels. Both of them, that's their daily thing. And they're reading through these things. And then I talk about them for just a couple minutes, what they read. Um, and so they're reading through this. I go and ask my nine-year-old, and he says the same thing. I said, why do you think Jesus can do this? He says, because Jesus heals dead people, and he heals little boys, and he heals little girls, and he heals blind people. 
He's like, Brooke's a little girl. I just read he just healed a little girl. And I was like, let's go. And I texted Robert and said, my family's coming. They're full of faith right now. Let's do this. But guys, this is just the truth. Jesus tells us we've got to come as little children. Why? Because they just believe the simple truths. They haven't had their mind filled with the junk and garbage that tells them maybe God can't do this. They don't need God to stand before them and say, when has my arm become too short? When did this doubt come in? When did you stop believing? I can tell you guys that for me, this is what keeps me alive. And listen, it's not because uh, you're trying to win Bible trivia. Okay? It helps. You will win Bible trivia. But that's not why you do it. You're doing it because, like John Lennox says, you're waiting to see his face. You're waiting to see him revealed as himself to you. There will never be a danger of a golden calf if you can continually, every day, allow the word to discern your heart. To speak to you who he is. When you read the gospels and you read who he is and what he's done and what he's said, then it keeps you on track. Guys, lastly, hey, um, visual guys, could you pull up the chorus to that song um, that was like, um, yours is the glory, yours is the power, that one. <laughs> what? I'm sure they'll do it. Yeah, anyway, I want to pull it up. I just want to give you like an experience I was having today because this is the point, guys. All of this comes down to this. Why is it so important to be in your word? Because you cannot be a vision-filled faith-filled laborer for the kingdom if you do not know who he is and why you're doing it. And this is what we need, guys. It's coming. It is literally coming. You can feel it. If you read the scriptures, you can feel it. The scriptures have a particular weight on it when you read it because the Spirit is saying stuff, and when we have eyes to see and ears to hear through the, the word here, we begin to sense it. And now when Jesus says, I have that you know not of, we don't, we don't sit there and say, what, did, did someone bring him food? We're like, I hear what you're saying, God. This is coming. This is inevitable. If it's not coming, if it's not inevitable, then woe to us. Woe to us who can say we're following the Lord of the harvest in the midst of a white harvest and not be out there harvesting. What are we doing? What are we doing? When prayer is a chore, there's something missing. But if it is a chore, do it. Do that chore until you see his face and then you realize this becomes a joy. This becomes something you look forward to. But just like anything else, you need to renew your mind. You need to break the habits you have and get here. Listen, I know it's kind of practical, but this is what I'm saying, guys. What we need now more than ever as a church, remember my dream, is this full thing. We need people who are ready to open up their houses, who are ready to open up their lives, who are ready to open up their bank accounts, who are ready to open up their emotional vulnerability and their ability to, to pour out into others. And the only way you're going to be able to do that is if you're seeing his face. Then you'll have something to give. Then you'll have something to say. Then you'll be a useful worker in the kingdom who when Jesus comes, you'll be able to say, here is tenfold. Here is a hundredfold. Do you understand that? It's a spiritual truth, but this is a practical plea from, from us. 
that we need more laborers. We need it. We need people to take serious the call of God and make it central in their lives. Give up the, the retirement plans. Give up the vacation dreams. Give up the luxury desires. Give it up. Give it all up. Burn it. Okay? In comparison to what you will receive, this is why in Song of Solomon it says this, that in comparison to this ahava that God is offering you as you see him, the thing that brings the joy of knowing him, that in comparison to what you get, it says that anything you could give in exchange for it would be utterly despised. It would be despised. So all we have to do is let go of the little temporal things we're holding on to that we think are so valuable and then trust God. And the only way you're going to do that, and I'm telling you guys, the only way you're going to do that is if you put your face before this daily and plead for God to show himself to you. And then when you read Matthew 6, you'll believe it because you're like, you're the God who does this. What do I have to fear? When you go to pray for God to bring in the harvest through you as a laborer, you won't be praying in some wild hope. You will be praying in faith because he promised it. And you've seen him and you're like, you're the one who does this. You do do this. You've done it. You've done it time and time again. And then you'll see little examples in your own life. And then you'll read of the people who've gone before us in history and seen what God's done. And then your faith will be stirred. And you'll live from that place. Uh, the chorus? Is there a chorus for this? What's the one where it just shows it at the end? That's fine. That's fine. You can leave that. That's fine. Um, I just wanted to close with this. This is... Part of where I see the greatest value in the word and having the word in me, having the word in my heart, right? It's there, okay? Now, I know there's so many of you, the, the joke and my wife's joke and a bunch of you joke that Steve's the Bible answer man, and I am not the Bible answer man, guys. Maybe I was in my late 20s, early 30s. My memory stopped working, so I need to continually read this every single day, and I'm only the Bible answer man if it's something I've read this week. And it's fresh there. Okay, but I see that and I'm like, I need the word to be the dominant force in my life. I need it to be buried. I need it to be in here. It has to resonate in everything I do. Uh, it's, 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 it's why people, you know, some of my, most of my humor is based on scripture humor. That or Tolkien. It's one of the two. That's where the humor comes from. But as I'm worshiping, this is what I'm saying. I can sing that song and God is moving and doing it. But instead, what pops into my heart when I'm worshiping, right, is the word kingdom. In this example. So this was just what was happening in this song. The word kingdom stands out. And I began to sing my own song, so to speak, right? And I begin to worship and say, yours is the kingdom because you're the king. Because you rule. Because you reign. Because your word says you're the king of kings. I say when those who think they're kings and they think they rule, when they turn around and they behold you, they bow their face and they get on their knees because you're the king of kings, because this is your kingdom, because your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, because you rule and reign, right? And I'm worshiping from that place. And then I see the next word, power. I said, yours is the power. All of it is yours. All of it that's out comes back to you. I said, you uphold everything by the word of your power. 
There is no power apart from your power. You graciously and generously delegate power to those you found faithful, God. And in that power, you are glorified. All power is yours. And then at the end, yours is the glory. And say, that's right, yours is the glory. You are the only glorious one. All glory that anyone else has is just delegated and shared glory from the source of glory himself. That everything that goes out will return back to you in glory. And then I begin to picture myself taking anything that I've ever received glory for and offering it to him in this moment as worship and saying, it's yours anyway. It's yours. Yours is the glory forever. And I begin to picture the, the idea of this glory. Like when I'm praying before service a couple of weeks ago, I remember thinking like, God, glorify your name in this place. Glorify yourself in this place. Allow the worship of every one of us measly saints to come together and to magnify you in the eyes of each other. That you would become big and that you would be glorified and people would see why they're here in the first place. And people would begin to live for this glorified God they see that they behold because that's what worship does guys it glorifies him it magnifies him it makes him big in the eyes of your fellow believers and those who come and they see it but that only happens if you have the word dwelling richly within you the word must dwell richly within you both as an individual and as together as a community it has to be our life source. It has to be our nourishment. It has to be what we breathe and speak and live because it is Christ. And this goes back to what I said in summary, what Paul said. How will they know if someone doesn't go? Where are the laborers? Where are the laborers? How will someone know? How will they hear the good news and then come and be given a Bible and see Christ revealed to them themselves? They need the opportunity for people to say, I do believe. At first, I believed because of the testimony and the witness of him who shared this truth. But now I've seen him myself, and my faith is rooted and grounded in him as he revealed himself to me. Amen? Guys, right now, this is the time. This is the moment of salvation. Not next week, not now, right? This is, this is the time. This is the, the Kairos moment of God to prepare us this time, this summer, well taught to prepare yourselves and to offer yourselves up as laborers before the Lord and say, Lord, give me the vision and the faith to truly make you central to everything I do. And this requires shifting and sacrifice and dying to ourselves so that we can see the Lord lifted up. So my big encouragement here, guys, is this. Right now, stand up. Let's ask God to do something. Do you believe God can do something in your heart right now? Then ask him for it. Ask him for it. He says in his word so many times that if we ask according to his name, it will be done for us. God, do it. Just take this time right now and ask in faith, guys, not in hope. Don't ask in hope because this is something the word promises so you can put your faith in it. Ask him to make you a laborer, to prepare your heart for this work. Ask him for plans, for strategies, for steps to take 
immediately to prepare yourself and then to get busy. Jesus, we just thank you, God, that you do what you say you do. I thank you that you are who you say you are, God. That you are Lord. That you are the King of kings. That you do rule and you do reign. And that you have given us your word and that you have given us your spirit and that you have given us your presence, God. God, save us from taking those things in vain. us a spirit of faith in this place, God, and a spirit of tenacity that we would choose to spend what time we have left on this earth for something greater than ourselves, for something greater than our own desires and our own comforts, God, that we would see with the eyes of eternity. But most of all, God, that you would open our eyes to behold your face as you've revealed it to us in Christ, that we would see and know the excellency of who you are, that it would shape us and define us and move us and change us, that it would gut us, God, and rebuild us, that we would be molded and shaped into the image of who you are, God. 